Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Hey, and welcome to 10% Happier. I'm Dan Harris. My guest today is a little bit out of our usual template in that she doesn't even meditate, and we're going to talk about why she doesn't meditate uh, at great length. But she has created a real sensation in the wellness world. She has one of the most popular TED Talks ever, more than 32 million views. Her name is Amy Cuddy. Uh, She, in her TED Talk and in her new book called Presence, which has become a a New York Times bestseller, she talks about how uh, through something as simple as what she calls a power pose, we can go from feeling powerless or like imposters to being much more confident and much more effective in the world. What is a power pose? Oh, okay. We have unlimited time, so you you can go go wherever you want. Okay, okay. School me. A power pose is uh, an expansive posture. Imagine sort of what what a superhero would do or what you do when you win first place in a race and you run through run across that the has never happened for me i knew you're gonna i just knew you were gonna say that i knew that one <laughs> was not gonna work for you <laughs> um, but you would throw your arms up in the air if you did, if that happened to you yes. that is what you would do uh into a v uh and lift your chin and smile so it's a, a really expansive powerful posture that you hold for a minute or two um, before a stressful situation, that's a power pose. So it's the people have compared it to like a, a cobra with its hood out. Or, yeah, exactly or right. Or, so think or Wonder about, Woman. Yeah, Wonder Woman. I mean, any. I mean, the, across the animal kingdom, when individuals feel powerful or have status, they expand. They take up space. They make their bodies as big as they can. They stretch out. You know, they sit at the highest point on the hill. Uh, you know, think of a peacock lifting and spreading its tail feathers. Mm-hmm. Uh, animals will stand on their hind legs to make themselves look bigger. Chimps will sometimes pick up sticks and hold them out to make themselves look bigger. Other other great apes have the ability to cause their hair to stand on end, which makes them look, look bigger. So when we feel powerful, we we want to take up a lot of space in the world to signal we're in charge. We've got the power right now, even if it's fleeting, like winning a race. And so you're saying that you, even if you don't feel powerful, you can use one of these poses to kind of trick your mind into feeling powerful That's, in a key moment. Yeah. So emotion expressions are, you know, nonverbal expressions of how you feel. So think about smiling when you're happy. But researchers now know that you also feel the emotion when you just make the expression. So you can smile, and that will make you feel happier. So if I'm, if I'm bummed out and I smile, I will actually start to feel better? I, I, I like to be careful about this. I don't know what will happen for you, but on average, that's what happens, right, across people. So you never, get, you never have a study result where everybody in the condition has the, the response that, you're, that you're, you've hypothesized. But yes, on average, if people force a fake a smile, it will improve their mood. Hmm. Um, Or if they furrow their brow, it will make them feel angrier. So that's called facial feedback. So the the takeaway is that emotions are expressed non-verbally, but non-verbal expressions also cause emotions. Now, all of that work was focused on the face. What we've been looking at is posture, you know, below the neck. Now, you know, knowing that expansive posture is associated with power, and that's a universal expression of pride, that's where you get to the hypothesis that it seems likely that you would get the same kind of feedback effect with posture. When we feel frightened and powerless, we do the opposite. You know, we wrap ourselves up, we touch our necks, we cover our faces, we pull our knees up, fetal position. We want to make ourselves invisible 
uh, as small as possible. We don't want to offend anybody. And so when you're going into a really stressful situation, so something that has high stakes and that feels like a social evaluation, much of life is a social evaluation, we tend to start feeling powerless and, and collapsing, right? Wrapping ourselves up. You think about going into the most stressful situation. You're not walking around like a superhero before you do that. That's signaling to the brain that you're in a stressful kind of fight or flight situation. And that's not the way you want to go into that situation. So, so this work, you know, is focused on whether you can expand before you go into those situations. And can that cause you to feel enough more confident that you can actually be in the moment, be present, engage with what's actually happening and not with what you fear is happening. So rather than, you know, going in and thinking, I should have said this a minute ago, what does this person think of me? What's going to happen after this moment? You know, when you go in feeling powerful, you're able to actually be there. So you just to drill down on that a little bit, your advice would be find a private place and strike a pose. That's that's what I yes that's what I would suggest. And what would these poses look like? I mean, well, you know, Wonder you could, Woman is one right. example that gets thrown around. I mean, around. it can be it can be whatever feels comfortable to you. And and so I you know I, I always get worried when people get really concrete and fixed on this. Like, does it have to be this for this amount of time? And it doesn't have to be anything. Uh, it, it other than expansive and open. Um, but you know, Wonder Woman, the victory pose, uh, feet up on the desk with your hands behind your head. That's a powerful posture. Anything that is really expansive. And yeah, I encourage people to do it uh, in, in the privacy of their own office or a bathroom <laughs> stall or a stairwell before they walk into these stressful situations so that they're walking in not feeling that a tiger is about to attack them. So you said at the beginning that there's so much more to this than power poses. What yeah. did you mean by that? Well, I just think that the the what I want people to understand more than should I stand like Wonder Woman for two minutes before a job interview is that your body is constantly conversing with your mind. And it's a two-way conversation, but we tend to focus on the mind-body direction more than the body-mind direction. And I think that the body is signaling a lot of information to our nervous systems about what state we're in and how we should respond. So I think that, you know, expansiveness is also related, well, it, it is also related to better mood. You know, if you sit upright and hold your shoulders back, you're likely to be feeling happier. Uh, you know, slouch posture is a clear signal of depression. But when you get depressed patients to sit upright with their shoulders back just for a couple of minutes, you see a reduction, you know, a redu reduction in depression symptoms and an increase in their memory for positive uh, events in their mm. lives and positive traits. So it just goes so far beyond uh, standing like Wonder Woman. It's, it's, I want people to know that how they carry their bodies is to some extent shaping how their interactions play out and how they're carrying themselves through their lives. And they can take control of that conversation. Uh, I think um, if you will uh, indulge me for a minute to go on uh, for two more minutes about this. I'll indulge you. Go ahead. <laughs> go for it. But think about the kinds of um, self-affirmation, you know, things that we used to think we should do to make ourselves feel more confident. Uh, Stuart Smalley looking exactly. in the mirror. Yeah. So now I've noticed, though, after giving talks all over the place that most people now don't know who Stuart Smalley is, okay, which is terrifying. Explain. Okay. Stuart Smalley was a character on Saturday Night Live played by Al Franken, who's now, now a, senator, a politician. Yes, you know, yes. now, now kids are like, but he's a politician. <laughs> he used to play Stuart Smalley. <laughs> and 
The idea was that he would stand in front of a mirror, sit in front of a mirror, and say to himself, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me, with a smile. And he would repeat this. It was called Daily Affirmation with Stuart Smalley. What was funny about it was that it didn't work. You know, by the end, he'd interview a guest, someone like Michael Jordan, someone famous, and by the end, he'd be saying things like, I am in a shame spiral, and I'm going to die homeless and penniless and overweight. No one will ever love me, and I'm a phony. They're going to cancel the show. It would go on and on. We, we thought that was funny because we know that when we are in a state of acute self-doubt, we're not going to believe ourselves when we say, I'm actually great. Now, not only are we self-doubting, we're liars as well. So I think that that old idea of self-aggrandizing um, self-affirmation before these stressful situations you know, turns out to totally backfire. What I like about the body-mind connection and these kinds of interventions is that your body is telling your mind uh, this information. You're, it's a little bit more primitive, right? So there's not as much room for that self-doubt. The body is just saying, yeah, actually, you're okay. You're safe. It's communicating that information to the nervous system. So there's just so much more out there. You know, work with, with um, uh, combat veterans with post-traumatic stress uh, or rape survivors with po post-traumatic stress, uh, depressed patients, all looking at these body-mind interventions and, and, you know, seeing a lot of success. If all of your indulgences are that interesting, you should just go for it without asking my permission every time. <laughs> okay. I suspect people are going to say, uh, okay, if you're depressed or if you're a rape victim, or even if you're just in a moment of acute self-doubt, don't we need something more than just posture improvement? Well, I mean, I, there's always more, right? I mean, it's, I guess for me, it's, you know, what little incremental thing can you do to feel a little bit better? So you're not saying this is a silver bullet? No way. And, you know, and, and sometimes I, you know, pe people say, oh, Amy Cuddy says it's a, you know, it's a, it's a cure-all. And I would never say anything like that. All I care about is helping people to feel a little bit better, you know, have seen incremental change over time. So if you feel a little bit better, so, uh, you know, I hear from so many people who explain to me how they use this kind of idea. Uh, imagine, here's one. One of the first people I heard from was, after the TED Talk, was a... Um, a retiree, World War II vet, uh, lived in Florida, who wrote to say, my biggest challenge is going in to see my physician and being taken seriously and getting the answers that I need because he's always dismissive with me. And we know that in healthcare, older people are dismissed. They're not taken as seriously. They're not given full information. And it's, it's a bias in the healthcare system. So he said, I realized that I had to, you know, adopt these powerful postures before I went in so that I had the courage to say, you know what, I'm not done. I've got more questions. Can you tell me more about that? So, you know, is that going to make him feel better forever? No, but it got him more information and it uh, made him feel more self-respecting, probably more respected by the physician. And the next time he goes into that situation, it's going to be a little bit easier because he'll have the, the memory of having done it before. So what about with you? Are you just constantly aware of your own posture? Um, I am a lot of the time. Uh, I, I mean, you have very good posture. I, for those who are just listening and not watching this, <laughs> you have your, your ramrod straight spine. I, um, I used to be a ballet dancer okay. So professionally, so that was a pretty big part of my life. So you know, dance is all about body language. It's, it's the best expression of really body language that there is. But I am, I am aware of it, not just because I think I feel better when I'm, when I'm sitting up straight, but because I know that other people are watching my posture. And I, like, I'll get comments like, 
you know, Cuddy's posture on this or that show. And I'm like, actually, that was the uh, the mic pack in my bag. But, you know, so I know that people are watching it very comfortably. That would be like if I stopped meditating. Yeah, yeah right. I'm comfortable being a hypocrite on a bunch of levels, but not that much of a hypocrite. Yeah, so you exactly. just ha- always have to watch your posture. I do. But do you notice, though, that it impacts your state of mind? I, You know, I feel like it does. And I, I know that this sounds so, this is so annoyingly sciencey, but... You never know for a single person, as an experimental psychologist, if something's working for that person. I mean, if if it's working through the mechanism that you hypothesized or it's working because it's a placebo, you don't know. I feel like it works for me. I mean, I certainly feel better. Uh, and I find that I stand in a much more open posture now than I used to. I mean, I was definitely a collapser. You know, I was always touching my neck and playing with my jewelry and um, making myself small. You know, I felt anxious a lot of the time. So I feel much less anxious now that I hold myself in a more open posture. I don't find that annoyingly sciencey at all. I mean, maybe it's because my both well, my parents are scientists and my wife is a scientist, and I, I, I think you're just being precise. Um, I want to talk about... Um, your personal history and the TED Talk and a, and a million other things. But but since we're talking about your science, uh, you and I were talking about this a little bit before we came yeah. on here. So you of late, there's been a little bit of a yeah. backlash that you've been dealing with. So I read this one article, I think it was in Slate. It was by this, these two guys, Andrew Gelman and Kaiser Fung, who described themselves as practicing practicing statisticians who work in social science. And they say, quote, an outside team attempted to replicate the original study using a sample population five times larger than the original group. In a paper published in 2015, the team reported they found no effect. And they go on to call your study uh, spurious. This is pretty tough stuff. Yeah. So how, you've, the uh, floor I mean, is yours. I don't mean you to can... be dismissive of it. I mean, so here's here's what I think is important about that. Mm-hmm. And, and there's stuff that, that is just subjective, personal sort of biases about certain kinds of research that I think I'd rather not get into. Okay. Um, but the, there is another study. Well, there are many studies that, that look at powerful posture, right? So, so what they're talking about, they're talking about the hormones findings in particular. In your study. Right. So that's, they're saying that it didn't replicate the hormones findings. What it did replicate is that people felt more powerful. So if the main takeaway for me is that when you expand, it makes you feel more powerful, this study with 200 people showed the same thing that we showed. Now, somehow that gets lost, but but here, let's get into the hormones because I think that that is where we, we don't know. I mean, the fact that they didn't replicate our, our findings with hormones, and we haven't really talked about that Yeah, yet. Well, you, why don't we go back and tell me about okay. your original study, and then we'll go okay. to this. So in our original study, we had uh, subjects assigned to either high or low power poses randomly. They didn't know about the other condition. They held two poses for one minute each, so a total of two minutes. We took uh, saliva samples before and after, and we were looking, and what we hypothesized was that powerful postures would lead to an increase in testosterone and a decrease in cortisol, and low power poses would do the opposite. Now, that's based deeply in uh, you know, neuroendocrinology, uh, uh, not just from humans, but from the animal literature as well. When individuals have power, that is the hormone profile that you see. And when a primate ascends to the position of alpha, he is likely to experience an increase in testosterone and a decrease in cortisol. So we hypothesized that faking power would trick your brain into thinking that you have power and you'd see these hormonal changes. We felt like it was the most conservative test of this hypothesis that it makes you more powerful. I mean, if you see this, then what you're getting is not just um, a priming effect. 
it's actually something physiological. What's a a priming effect? Oh, so where you're primed with a concept of power, and so you go, oh, yeah, I am more powerful, Uh uh right? By the way, that's okay, too. Like, I think that's interesting stuff, but we wanted to get at something more physiological. So that's what we found. We found what we predicted. And I have to say, as an experimental psychologist, like, you don't get clean results very, very often. This was one of the cleanest studies we had ever done. And what I mean is everything we predicted happened. And the chances of getting, you know, having that happen are pretty slim, you know, to have multiple hypotheses and see the directional changes that you predicted on all of those hypotheses. Uh, so now- So people self-reported feeling more powerful and then also they had more testosterone and lower cortisol. Right, we also, we did a second study in that paper uh, in in both of the studies, we looked at feelings of power and risk-taking. And in both of the studies, we found effects on both feelings of power and risk, risk-taking. The hormones piece, we only looked at in the second study. So in two studies, we found feelings of power increase with high-power poses and risk-taking increase with high-power poses. So they were more willing to take what kind of risks? It's like a, a very low... Um, uh, low-cost gamble. So ba- they're paid to come to the lab to do the study, and they get that payment no matter what. We then offer them an extra payment, and then they can gamble to you know, possibly double that or lose it. So it's, it's like it's a tiny windfall that they weren't expecting, and they can leave with or without it. Uh, you know, so so that, that was the gamble. Um, they, we actually had real money. You know, it wasn't a computer task. It was, you know, here's a, here's a die, roll the die, and here's some money. Uh, so we found an, an increase in risk-taking and feelings of power, and then in the second study where we looked at hormones, we found that. There's another study from six years earlier that looked just at, this was a medical study that looked just at the cobra pose, which is a yoga pose, you know, where you imagine lying on your stomach, and you push yourself up with your hands, and you open your shoulders, and you sort of arch your neck. Yeah, every that's, time I do that, I jack my back up. It it hurts, right? Yeah, it like, hurts. It's, and that's what I think is interesting about this study is that it's not a particularly comfortable pose. So it's not that powerful postures are more comfortable. They're not always more comfortable. In that study, these people wanted to look at uh, blood serum changes in four hormones, uh, testosterone, cortisol, and two others that I'm not going to start talking about. <laughs> that what they found were effects only on testosterone and cortisol. So it's a very small study, but everyone in that condition had an increase in testosterone and a decrease in cortisol. Blood serum levels, which are more conservative than our saliva samples. That's another thing that rarely happens in in an experiment. Every person shows the effect. Uh, And the the average effect was a 16% increase in testosterone and an 11% decrease in cortisol. So there is other evidence that, that this happens. The study from 2015 um, did not find the effect on hormones. They also did a lot of things. They changed a lot of the vari- the independent variables in the study. So they changed the methods in ways that when the paper came out, we thought this is really cool because it gives us some insight into the moderators of the effect. So I, I, it's a little frustrating that it's seen as this, oh, it's a non-replication, so this means it doesn't work, as opposed to, well, all of these things were different, so let's look at what happens when you move them around. You know, they're still getting effects on feelings of power, but for example, they had people hold two poses for a total of six minutes as opposed to two. That's a pretty big difference. Um, They did a lot of the tasks differently. They had a difference. It was done in another country. I mean, these are all potentially interesting moderators of these effects. So it's you know, when it came out, it was really exciting. And we actually did write a response reviewing a lot of other studies that showing effects of powerful posture on 
you know, so showing these feedback effects, not necessarily on hormones because there are so few of those, but it's somehow, you know, it's too bad that it's taken in this direction of, oh my gosh, this isn't a real effect. I think that as science evolves, you know, we're going to be wrong about some stuff. Maybe, maybe we are totally wrong about the hormones. Like, let's say that all of those findings in that first study all were a fluke. Okay, we're going to move on. We're going to keep learning, right? We don't stop studying something because one study didn't replicate it. But also uh, the self-report data and the cortisol data would, or is cortisol just, also hormone? No, cortisol is also. also. Okay, so, so but the self-report self data right? would be would be valuable, no? Yeah, I think so, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that, you know, if you're still seeing an effect on feelings of power, it's possible that their study, which had, as you said, it had 200 people, which was a lot more than we had in our study. And we are fine. In the last couple of years, psychology has really shifted to having more subjects in the studies to increase what we call statistical power, uh, to know, to be more sure that the effect is real. So that is absolutely a strength of, our of their study and a weakness of ours, which we did in 2009. And if we were doing the study again, I would change nothing except that. I would have, you know, four times or five times as many people. So, yeah, I'd like to see the science grow. I'd like to see us all talking about it rather than going, this one showed it, this one didn't. It's real, it's fake. I, I'm not sure how that happened, but it's happening not just with regard to our study, but with regard to just about every finding in social psychology. So this is happening all over the place in social psychology are the, these these kind of fights where people are staking out positions. and But this is kind of the way, I mean, look, I, I, I'm not a scientist. I'm, as I said before, I, I, I'm close to a lot of them. But this is kind of the way science works, where it's to the benefit of all of us that we have these kind of um, tough battles among the scientists because ultimately it gets us to the truth. I think that's true, but I think that a couple of things. I mean, I don't think that the battles have to be we've finished like this is the this is the final conclusion right. we know that and i feel that that's where some people would like to take this and and again lots of other effects in psychology so not limited to this i don't see why we wouldn't continue to have a discussion about the boundary conditions of these effects and what are the mechanisms if it's not the hormones but we're getting effects on feelings of power what is happening is it a priming effect is it i mean here's another possibility when you breathe deeply and slowly, and you probably know this work uh, better than I do, but you have another body-mind effect. When you breathe deeply and slowly, it's telling your vagus nerve that you are in a rest and digest situation, so that you are calm. So break that down. What is the vagus nerve and what is uh, rest and digest? The vagus nerve is uh, it, it's sort of a central nerve that, that's, that's uh, related to your feelings of threat. And when you breathe deeply, it basically, it responds as if you are safe. Because when you are safe, you can breathe deeply and slowly. So again, it's this sort of bi-directional relationship. Now, that work, people refer to that as the relaxation response, has been used for decades. I mean, there's, there are many, many studies on this. Doctors use it all the time to calm patients uh, before surgeries or to even to increase compliance with instructions. Uh, it clearly is working well. You see that happening in a lot of these yoga-based interventions as well. That's a possible mechanism. I mean, obviously, when you are standing in a more open posture, your breathing is going to change. So that's something that we could be looking at. I just think there's so much to this. Let's break it down and kind of work on this collaboratively rather than staking out positions. I don't think that that does serve science. Have there been moments during this uh, back and forth where you've really needed a power pose? Yeah. Yeah, of course. I mean, I, I think the worst part is 
I care so much about the people who are affected by this kind of work. And, you know, I, I, I know that other people aren't receiving the emails that I receive or, or meeting the people who I meet who say, look, my awareness of my body, you know, changing my awareness of my body has helped me in this way. So I would like to really understand this as well as we can. I, I certainly don't want to give up on something because a study didn't replicate it um, when you've got dozens of studies that have shown effects. So it's that to me is heartbreaking. Um, and, you know, look, people are generally really positive. I, I We're talking about a, a, a small group, but it certainly hurts when people make attributions about my motives. You know, that, oh, she's got a book now. Now, the book doesn't talk about the hormone study until chapter eight. Like, the, the, the book cites hundreds of studies on many, 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 many things in social psychology. It doesn't even get into body language until chapter six. So it's frustrating to me that, that if this study doesn't replicate, and maybe it won't, that, that everything, you know, gets dismissed or it's seen as... Um, uh, you know, that I want to hold on to this finding because somehow everything is illegitimate if this finding doesn't replicate. It might not replicate. I, I'm, I will be okay with that. Yeah, I, yeah I, I will be okay with that. So what's the next step? Do more studies? Yeah, I mean, I think people are doing more studies. I'd like people to do more studies in field settings because I think that lab settings are a little bit limiting. It's, and partly, honestly, because because of the popularity of the TED Talk, a lot of people who go into these studies have heard of this already. And that's That's likely to affect people. That's right. So, you know, who knows in what direction people might react against it or they might go, oh, yeah, this will definitely help me. But I think that field settings where people aren't, you know, it's it's not so heavy handed, the manipulation might give us some more insight into how it works in the real world. And I really would like to see, for me, you know, helping people who feel chronically powerless with little interventions like this that are free, man, if, if I could do that with my life, that's what I would like to be doing. Well, you, you have, so, um, and I'm sure you want to do more of it, um, but clearly a lot of people have taken this very seriously and it's been very meaningful to them. And the response, as I understand it, to the TED Talk, I mean, the sheer volume of people who've watched it is staggering, and I know that you're hearing from people all the time. I want to talk about that, but I also want to talk about the fact that it's had a big impact on you personally. Yeah. Well, and this is a story that you tell very movingly in your TED talk this show is brought to you by better help i gotta tell you i feel so much better when i talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up there's an expression that i first heard from the great researcher and also zen practitioner robert waldinger never worry alone our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash happier. As they say at Amica, empathy is our best policy. Whether you need auto, home, or life insurance, they're ready to help you protect the things that matter most to you. They're a mutual company, customer-owned, in service to you. 
Amica representatives are here when you need them and you can take comfort knowing a real person will be there on the phone to take care of you because the greatest measure of their success is your satisfaction. Can you just walk us through, for those of us who, who don't know much about your story, how uh, how this this uh, these posture tweaks have started to make sorry, not have started to, have had a huge impact on your self-image and the way other people perceive you. Well, I mean, so I could talk about sort of the response that I've gotten, or do you mean more your about personal my, story, yeah. my back yeah, story? Yeah, um, your personal story, and then we'll go into the response. Well, so I, yeah, so when I was in college, I was in a, a bad car accident, and I woke up in a head injury rehab ward, and I had been withdrawn from college, and you know, I, I spent, it was a very, very long recovery. I mean, the, the kind of head injury I, I had, which is common in car accidents, is called a diffuse axonal injury. And what happens is, if you think of the brain as an onion, and each layer is a different density, when you're in a high-speed crash, you know, so we were going 80 or 90 miles per hour, um, the car rolled, and I was thrown out. So suddenly, your brain is shaking against your skull, which is, your skull is meant to protect your brain, but they're not ever supposed to touch, right? They should not meet. In this case, they did. When that happens, those different layers are moving at different speeds. So, so the result is that axons that are connecting these layers are torn throughout the brain. So they call it a diffuse axonal injury. Now, what's really frustrating about that for doctors and patients is that because it's all over the brain, no one can tell you what your prognosis is. They can't really. They can guess based on data, from other patients, right? Which makes sense. Um, and from doing a lot of neuropsychological testing, but some people might recover really quickly and some people might not, never recover, but it also affects your feelings, your thoughts, your personality. I mean, really even things like your startle response. I mean, I have a horrible startle response, which is very common uh, result of head injury. So you say in the book, Presence, the New York Times bestselling book, um, that you uh, that you felt like an imposter in your own body because your friends dropped you because they've said your personality had changed. I really, really did. I felt I felt like I didn't know who I was. I my IQ dropped by 30 points. Uh, which I found honestly totally crushing. <laughs> because you had been a high achieving, smart, super smart kid. I had been a super smart kid. I don't know if I was high achieving, but you know, <laughs> the funny thing about that is that I didn't feel like I had to be high achieving because I knew I was smart, and gotcha. and so it felt like something I it was something that I had totally took for granted. A core part of your identity. Uh, yeah, and and that makes it sound like be, you know being smart and competent was the most important thing, and I I don't think it was the most important thing. I think being a decent person was more important, and seeing lots of live music. But other than that, <laughs> I mean, but being smart was, I didn't realize how core it was until it was taken away. And everything was hard, and I couldn't process spoken information, and I was frustrated Whoa. all the time. And and I have my friends telling me, you're a different person. I mean, that is really, really hard to take because the other outcome of a head injury is that you don't remember that much. And not just after the head injury, but for a lot of people, you know, there's a period of time before the head injury that's very foggy. And for me, that was about a year. So I really, and college, I was 19. So you are really developing as a person. I didn't know who I was, and I felt like I kept trying to hold on to this old self, but it was like um, it was like a wet ball of sand that was drying in my hands, and it was sort of slipping between my fingers, and I couldn't hold on to it. And I think I finally decided that 
it's sort of like a relationship that's not terrible and not great, but you know you're not going to marry the person. So you can either stay in it or you can leave. You can stay in it and wait to see if something better comes along and then leave or just leave because you know it's not going to work. I had to kind of break up with my old self to find a new self before I knew what that new self was. So I sort of had to go, I'm not ever going to be exactly that person again. And it's going to have to be okay because that's the only way I'm going to move on. And then when you do that, you're kind of free to see who you are and to see the path unfold. So that's sort of what happened for me. And you ended up going back to college and then going to grad school and studying social psychology. But during that time, as you made friends with your new self, as you describe it in your book, you were really anxious and wanted to make yourself small. Oh, so anxious. Yeah. I mean, even right now, look, I'm, I'm like pulling my knees up as we talk about this. It's really, that, that was a really hard time. Um, it took me four extra years to finish college. I had, I started and dropped out a couple of times, you know, I was failing classes. And by the time I finished, you know, I, I was four years, four years later than my high school classmates. But I had chosen psychology as a major because, you know, me search and all of that. Um, <laughs> And Me search meaning you just wanted to find out more about yourself. I, well, I That's wanted to find out more about head injury. Uh, yeah, exactly. uh, I mean, this is you know, psychologists. So many people say it's me search. You know, it's it's people go into psychology because they want to understand themselves better. Mm-hmm. So I did start in a neuropsychology lab, in and when I went back to school, and uh, I decided studying head injury was probably not my thing. Ended up in social psychology, and kind of miraculously, really through a lot of like goodwill and me. Well, as my advisor says, having chutzpah, I ended up at Princeton as a grad student, which felt... You're, you're clearly not Jewish, are you? Because no. we, we say chutzpah. Chutzpah. There you go. There. Nicely okay, done. better? Uh, so, yeah, I, well, actually, I have to be honest. The first time she used that, I had no idea what, <laughs> what it meant. She... <laughs> I was like 25, and I'm like, thanks. And you made I it to 25 home. without ever hearing this word? I grew up in Amish country. Okay, fair like, enough. Like, honestly, I mean, everyone looked like me. I mean, like five five and blonde, like all of the women look like me. And we learned German as kids in elementary school because our parents spoke uh, German English dialect. I mean, uh, our, sorry, our grandparents. Anyway, not for nothing, Yiddish is a mixture of, of uh, German and Hebrew. Well, and 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 Pennsylvania Dutch sounds a lot like Yiddish. There, there are a lot. There's a lot of overlap. There. So they don't say chutzpah. Though. They don't. I mean, no. Anyway, you got the prince, and I, I derailed you. Go ahead. Yeah, we have more like we have Scrapple. In it. Scrapple. Sort of, yeah. Anyway. Um, uh, anyway. Now I'm hungry. Or Rutchen. Do you know that one? No. So it means like a kid who's like moving around a lot. He's a rutcher. A rutcher. Your baby's a rutcher now. Yeah, that's so that's Pennsylvania Dutch. Anyway. Um, I have a rutcher at home. A rutcher. Yeah, I had a rutcher too. So, sorry. You made it to Princeton because to of Princeton. your chutzpah. I think so. Yeah. And, and, and I do think that's why I made it there. And because I had nice female advisors who kind of took me under their wings and wanted to see me succeed. But I did not want to tell people other than my closest, you know, closest friends. And and my, of course my advisor knew that I had had this head injury. I wanted to hide that because I was sure that everybody would kind of turn on me and I'd be found out and I'd be kicked out and somebody would come along and say, "Um, we're sorry, we made a mistake. So it really stoked all of those fears. So getting through grad school was not easy. I worked, I think I worked extremely hard. I think a lot of people do in, in grad school, but I think it might have been harder for me. How did you turn things around? I had a great advisor. I, she is she's a saint, um, Susan Fisk, great great psychologist, 
grew you know her father was a psychologist her brother's a psychologist like grew up in a family of psychologists um just a fantastic advisor so the, honestly that is by far number one by a lot uh she could have given up on me many times but one of the things she helped me to do, she was not easy. You know, she was not easy on me. She made me work hard, but she would say, you can do better than this. You can do better. It was always this sort of incremental feed change. In the end of my first year at Princeton, I had to give a talk to my, my area of the department, which is 20 people about the research that I had done. Look, I'm like gulping. I'm doing all the nervous body language things as I tell this story. <laughs> and I decided I was so absolutely sure that if I gave the talk, I'd be found out, that the other faculty members would go, how did we let her in? We need to kick her out. That I decided not to, and that not only would I not give it, but I, I can't not give it and go on, so I had to quit. Mm -hmm. So I told my advisor that I was going to quit grad school. I mean, think after all of those years trying to recover from this head injury, I'm going to quit Princeton because I but didn't want to give this talk. And she basically said, and it's funny, we've talked about this pep talk and she remembers it, you know, of course, it's a, her version is a little bit different, but it was something like, no, you're going to give it and you're going to just have to fake confidence. Like you're going to just have to get through it because this is not about not knowing what you're talking about. You're talking about your research. So of course you have the knowledge. You're going to have to fake the confidence just to get through it. And you should keep giving talks. Every time you're invited to give a talk, give a talk because it will get easier and easier. And eventually, and she said, it's not going to be magical and it's not going to happen overnight. You will look back and say, wow, I'm doing this now. And this is not nearly as hard. I'm not pushing the boulder up the hill. This is okay. Uh, and that's sort of what happened, but it took a long time. And after Princeton, I, I uh, ended up at Rutgers for a year in psychology, then at Kellogg at Northwestern in the business school for two years. And then I moved to Harvard Business School, which was, you know, like a fresh dose of imposter syndrome. And, um, you know, it, but it wasn't as bad. It was it was a little bit easier. And I'm watching my students in class and at Harvard Business School and most business schools, participation is about half of your grade. And it is serious. Like the people are fighting for airtime. The comments are very high quality. You're expected to engage. You know, you're debating. You do not go in unprepared. You read everything you're supposed to read. It's terrifying. And you will be cold called. And that's sort of the, the biggest fear of all HBS students is the cold call. So I had students toward the end of my first semester of teaching who had not yet spoken in class. So I was going to have to basically fail them if they didn't speak. And I, you know, I wasn't yet good at figuring out how to make sure everybody got in. So I wrote to these people, it was like maybe three, saying, you haven't participated. And if you don't participate in these last three classes, I'm going to have to fail you. And one of them said, can I come in and meet with you? And I honestly thought that she was going to have some excuse like, well, we had to go to Cancun because it was a section thing and, you know, like some excuse about why she couldn't do this. But that wasn't what she did. She came in and she sort of collapsed like, um, you know, the front cover of my book has one of these wooden dolls that you put, you push on the bottom of them. They're elasticized. You oh, push yeah. on the bottom and mm -hmm. they collapse. Yep. But when you release the pressure, pressure's off. Boom. Power pose. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So I looked at her. Her name is Katrina. Uh, and Katrina looked like one of those collapsed dolls. You know, that was the first. I mean, her body language was utterly powerless. But then she says, I'm not supposed to be here. And that was what I said to myself through grad school. It was like my mantra. You know, I'm not supposed to be here. In my mind, I was telling myself that. 
So I realized that she did deserve to be there because she'd gotten in and it's not easy. And she came from this small rural town. We kind of had similar backgrounds in that way. But also she she's smart. You know, I, I, I know what she says to me in office hours. I know what her writing looks like. I know she deserves to be there. And I know that I got through that. So I basically gave her the kind of pep talk that my advisor had given me, which was you're going to kind of fake this confidence thing. Fake it until you make it. And get through it. And so the next class she made an amazing comment. I mean, she said, I I mean, I said, I'm going to call on you. So just be prepared. It was really great. Like heads spun, you know, people who had not really even noticed her, noticed her. I thought it sounded great. She said that she felt like she was going to throw up. I mean, she said it was so anxiety provoking, but it got easier and easier for her. And, you know, she's now doing the kind of work she wants to be doing. So part of it for her, she said, was feeling that she could be herself, that feeling more powerful in these situations allowed her to reveal who she is and to be honest with herself about what she wanted to be doing with her life. So she's actually now in education. She's not in the, in the business world. So she says that she sort of, you know, faked it until she became this version of herself that she it was sort of the best version of herself. So that's your tweet, because the old expression is fake it until you make it, but you're, you're saying fake yeah. it until you become it. Yeah, which annoys people who want everything to rhyme, by the way. They're like, <laughs> why would she not say fake it until you make it? Uh, no, but no, but the idea was that when I started doing this research, I really thought that I would be giving people a tool to get through a horrible situation and then go back to being themselves. So to get these students to participate, and then you can go back to being yourself. So fake it till you make it through. That's sort of how I saw it. I did not expect what happened to happen, which is that feeling powerful reveals. But it's actually totally consistent with all of this experimental research on power, what power does to the brain, which is uh, it activates the approach system. It's disinhibiting. People um, are more open. They see challenges not as threats but as opportunities. They feel more optimistic and confident about themselves and others. They believe that their actions will have an impact. They are just simply more likely to act and ultimately to show a true version of themselves because they're not worried so much about what other people think of them. And it's, there's a great quote about power from um, Robert Caro, who was LBJ's biographer. And if you don't know Stuart Smalley, you may not know that Lyndon Johnson is a former president of the United States. <laughs> if you uh, don't know that, shame on you. <laughs> no, so, so Robert Caro was asked once, because when, when you say the word power, most people think of corruption. They, they, they associate yeah. with corruption. Uh, so if you say, you need to feel powerful, a lot of people are like, uh, I'm not cool with that. But somebody said to him in an interview, so after all of these years studying presidents, what do you think does power corrupt? And he said, power does not necessarily corrupt, but power always reveals. And that's it. To me, I'm like, there it is. It reveals. It reveals who you are. When we feel powerless, we do exactly the opposite. It activates the inhibition system. We put a wall up. When we're feeling powerless and scared, why would we be our true selves? We just want to get away. You know, we want to protect ourselves. So it it undermines our executive function. It makes us pessimistic and just generally feel sad. We don't act even when we should because we feel like, why bother? It's not going to do anything. And we present this socially constrained version of ourselves. And you really think starting with um, – because I think so many of us have felt powerless or, or, or like we're imposters. I mean for years – I've been at ABC News for 16 years, and I would say for 15 and a half of those years, I couldn't believe they let me through security. You know, yeah. I mean, and 
so so many of us resonate clearly with with what you're talking about here. But you really think in those situations, the first step of kind of like faking it, tricking yourself in some ways can start the ball rolling toward having the good kind of power that reveals in a good way? Yeah, I do. I think that it's, you're not tricking anyone else, right? They have no reason to believe you are or are not powerful, right? I mean, you're, you can't fake confidence, right? You need to have the skills. You need to have the knowledge. So it's not like I stayed at a Holiday Inn last night and I can you know, perform brain surgery in those commercials. You know, I, I don't didn't know. see that Okay, one, but there was a whole I, so campaign missing, of, of Holiday Inn commercials well, where people not, stay at a Holiday Inn the next day. They're you know Formula One driving. No, or it's not like a, it's not like a con artist, right? Or these people who you know are, go around and and what you know what was the movie with Leo DiCaprio where he's the Catch Me If You Can. Exactly, it's not like that. Most people can't fake competence. It's about unlocking the competence that you have, right? So let me give you an example of of. of someone who says this is how it worked for her. This woman came up to me at a coffee shop. She was actually working at the coffee shop. And she said, you know, are you Amy Cuddy? And, you know, your TED Talk really changed my life. And I said, well, what happened? She said, well, um, I'm from, I grew up in Texas, but I'm Iranian. And I don't feel, uh, I never felt like I fit in. My parents were refugees. And, you know, Texas is not, it just didn't feel like my home. I went to the University of Texas. I still didn't feel like an, an insider. I felt like an imposter. And after school, I finished. When I fi- graduated, I didn't know what to do. So I moved here, and now I'm you know, working as a server. She said, but I saw your talk, and I realized that I do know what I want to do. I just wasn't w- really willing to confront what it would take to get that thing. And I said, well, what, what was it? And she said, I want to go to medical school. I want to be a doctor. And so I said, well, what, what was stopping you? And she said, I did not want to take the MCAT exam. Mm. I was t- so terrified that if I did poorly, I could not recover from that because it, it's diagnostic. And, and how do you recover from a bad score? So concrete. And uh, so she said, but the thing is, I knew my stuff. You know, I knew what I needed to know. I had the knowledge to do well on the MCAT exam. And so... She said that she stood in a bathroom stall for two minutes before she took it, and she nailed it. And what I like about that is that it's not like power posing magically gave her some knowledge of stem cells or whatever she needed to do well on the, the exam. That She had that already. She couldn't unlock it, and, and that gave her the key to unlock it. So, uh, so she says, you know, I was my best self. That's, the, that's what people keep coming back telling me is I was my best self. I'm, I'm my best self more of the time. They don't say, oh, I became a different person. They say, I couldn't show people who I am, and now I can. So that makes complete sense to me. I mean, the, the, the response you're getting, which has been overwhelming to this talk, which is, was in 2012, mm-hmm. do I have that right? The, it seems like it's not just that people walk away with this simple, actionable piece of advice, which is do a power pose. It's also this idea of just locking onto your story of somebody who felt powerless, felt like an imposter, and mustered the courage in part because of good advice yeah. to make a big change. And and so it's not so it seems like you're giving people courage on a on a bunch of important levels. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, sorry, I shouldn't say yes, but um, I think people are taking a lot of different messages from it. So it you know when I hear from people, it, 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 and it's funny if we could go back 
just for a moment, maybe I, I, I'm having an opportunity to finally talk about this, but to the criticism, when, when people say, oh, the TED Talk about hormones, what if the study doesn't replicate, nothing's real. It's like, actually, I only spent about two minutes talking about that study. <laughs> the talk is 20 minutes long, and it's about a lot of other things. So people are locking onto different pieces of it. So talking about imposter syndrome, um, talking about head injury, talking about just how body language affects us. And uh, there are just so many different pieces of it. But I, I think a big part of it is that, you know, I shared my own insecurities. And and you started I, to cry. Yeah, yeah, that was... And telling the story of Katrina. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and I think that that was, the, you know, the, the first bunch of emails that I got, and still most of them that I get say you know, thanks for sharing your story. I, I don't feel alone. And, you know, one of the things that happens is people will say, I feel like you were telling my story, or I feel like you were writing my story. And it reminds me because I, I do love music so much. And I lock on to songs and I love lyrics. And I just, you know, I think so much about what this song means and what they were thinking. And uh, I often feel I have that feeling that the song was my song, mm. you know, that I, it speaks to me. It's my story. And that's when people come up to me, say, in an airport and say that, and they'll hug me or cry. I totally get what they mean. It's a universal experience for the most part. Most people have been insecure, have felt like imposters, and they want to know that there's a way out, that some people got out. Do you feel like imposter syndrome is more prevalent among certain kinds of people, certain genders, certain uh, uh, races, ages, ethnicity? So when that when the phenomenon of imposter syndrome was first studied in the 70s by a woman named Pauline Clance, who herself felt like an imposter, mm -hmm. grew up in Appalachia, didn't like went to 11th grade, ended up getting a PhD, but always felt like an imposter. Um, she thought it was a, a women's a, a problem. And then she ended up teaching at Oberlin and meeting more female students who were successful. And she, she saw them and thought, well, but they really are successful. I really wasn't. So, I mean, that's one of the things we do. We say, well, she's really not an imposter. I was, but she's not. Anyway, she thought it was a women's problem, then realized not much later that actually it's just that women were much more likely to openly talk about it. And it's, it's, so it's equally prevalent among women and men. It, so, and she calls it now an, the imposter experience because she said it's not a syndrome. It's not pathological. It's way too common to be seen as pathological. Women and men experience it at equal, equal rates. Um, it does not seem to be race-specific. People feel it in all different kinds of jobs. People feel it sometimes at home and sometimes at work. There's just no demographic pattern. Uh, I, the, you know, there are a couple of personality variables like perfectionism that are related to it. So perfectionists are more likely to report experiences of you know, imposter feelings. But for the most part, it's a general experience. I think yeah, 80% of Harvard Business School students say they feel it. It's about 80% of people report feeling imposter syndrome um, or imposter beliefs. It was when she started to uh, have people a answer these questions anonymously that she saw that men really did feel it as much. And I think that's really important because it's been framed in the last few years, not, I, I don't think as a result of my talk, I think that it was out, the idea has been out there for a long time, but as a women's problem, like some, like women feel like imposters in the workplace. Well, men do too. They just feel like they can't talk about it. So by calling it a women's problem, it does a disservice to women because they think, oh, there's another one on the pile of 
obstacles we have to get over. And men then hear that and go, uh-oh, I'm the only one. I better not tell anybody because apparently men don't feel this. So I think it's a burden for men as well. So, you know, it's, 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 it's very common. Two more questions for me, both of them self-interested. Um, the, I wonder, you know, you 32 million people is just such an enormous number of people to watch this video. Such a high percentage of them clearly feel strongly about it and people come up to you in airports and hug you and things like that. Do you ever feel the reason why this is self-interested is, is because some, I, I, not a, a tiny fraction of that read my book. Um, but, but I often feel when people come up to me and are excited to meet me because they read my book, like I'm going to disappoint them. Oh God, I do too. Yeah. You do. I okay. mean, I do. I, but I love the, here's the thing. I love them so much. I love these people. They are so, I feel like they're so much more interesting than I am. And I kind of, focus on that I, so I instantly just I want to hear all about them and like book signing lines I think for my publicists have become nightmares because I want to talk to all of them because they all come up they're like I have a story and I'm like grabbing their hands and crying <laughs> with them and and you know at the moment I'm thinking this is the most interesting wonderful person in the world so I I guess I don't feel because I'm so focused on how interesting they are I'm less worried now but my first the first year of it, I felt all the time like I'm going to disappoint people. And when I'm low energy, I do. Yeah, I'm. I'm sure that I disappoint people. Uh, it's that's a that's tough. I get it. I mean, I did this. That's too. a different like, kind of imposter syndrome. I'm like, I'm your biggest fan. I love you so much. You're so amazing. You're like, uh oh. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I'm a huge narcissist, so I had no problem with it. It's more just that, like, I'm, all of a sudden, I feel like, oh. Well, I'm, you know, the, writing a book, it took, uh, it was four years. I curated every sentence in there. So I, I seem much funnier than I actually am because that was, I worked on it for four years. I can't work on what I'm going to say next for four years. Yeah. Um, but you're right. The right thing to do is then just to talk about the person who's come up to you. So here's my final question, also self-interested. I've seen you tweet about the benefits of meditation, but you, you don't actually do it. Mm. Why not? Because I am one of the people that you describe in, in your book who feels she can't do it. Why do you feel you can't do it? I just, you know, it's the racing mind. And then I get into this. It's like, for me, it's meditation is the Stuart Smalley scenario where I'm trying to tell myself I can do it. But then the more I get stuck not being able to do it, and I feel like everyone around me is doing it, the more anxious I get. So it makes my anxiety even more acute. Um, I feel like I need to be moving. And so that's, I think that's part of my interest in this body mind stuff is you know, there probably are people who, I don't want to say can't meditate, but will find it so difficult that it becomes disempowering or they quit. Here's an alternative. And actually, I don't even, it's an alternative, but really, I bet the mechanisms are pretty similar. And we're getting to similar outcomes where people are feeling peaceful and confident and able to be open to whatever happens as opposed to wanting to control everything that happens. Okay, so now I'm going to hop on my soapbox. Uh -oh. You ready for this? But this is all good. This, I have good news for you all around. One is that the point, and this is a big misunderstanding about meditation, which is that you have to feel a certain way. You don't. The point is to feel whatever you're feeling clearly. And so what you're feeling, what you're describing is doubt. Mm -hmm. You're feeling doubt. And all you have to do is make a note of, I'm feeling doubt. You're not supposed to feel calm with the the traditional art around meditation has served us very poorly with people floating off into the cosmos and all that stuff. That, that is not the way it's going to feel. It's going to feel whatever is going on with you at that moment. If you're feeling that, you are meditating correctly. And so you, what you described before about your experiences of meditation, were meditating. Mm -hmm. 
the whole thing of thinking everybody else is doing it right, that's called comparing mind. You were just comparing yourself to other people. Um, so, so the point is, uh, A, don't expect to feel a certain way and because expectations are the most noxious ingredient to, to introduce into a meditation context. Two, everybody's getting lost a million times, so don't worry about it. Welcome to the human condition. Uh, and three, there is an alternative. It's called walking meditation. Uh, it's not like walking around the, the park, although you can do it that way, but in a more, it helps to f start with a more formal uh, variety, which is just kind of like I do it right in this room where, where we, in my office where we are right now. You just start on one side of the room and walk really slowly to the other side of the room, carefully feeling every sensation of the movement. And every time you get lost, which you will a million times, you just notice, oh, I've become distracted and start again. Anyway, that's All my right. soapbox. Well, I mean, I did read, I love uh, Tara Brock's work, and I have a lot of her like, audio meditations. Mm -hmm. And the idea of accepting an emotion, uh, just acknowledging it and accepting it, yeah. really, really resonates with Absolutely. me. Absolutely. So that, that's the closest I've gotten. Thanks for listening. Our thanks to Amy Cuddy for coming in. Um, let me ask you a favor before I let you go. If you like what you're hearing here, do me a solid and uh, subscribe to the podcast, rate it, five stars would be nice, and uh, write a review. That will definitely help us stay alive. We want to keep doing this. Um, so rating and reviewing it and subscribing it is all super useful. I also want to thank the producers of this show, uh, Josh Cohen, Lauren Efron, Sarah Amos, and the head of ABC News Digital, Dan Silver. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back with another podcast very soon. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the new kids and family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. 
pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.